Hello and welcome. My name is Alex MacPhail and this is High Performance Teams. I'm a former aerobatics display pilot from the South African Air Force and I love talking about high performance teams, what makes them work and what we can all learn from them. In the show, we talk to race pilots, professional sportsmen and women, entrepreneurs, comedians, performing artists and more. Please enjoy and remember to subscribe. Good afternoon to you. Welcome. Today I have an interesting guest who's going to hopefully provide a robust discussion on all things of creativity and wildlife and trying things new. Graham Wellington is the Chief Executive Officer of Wild Earth. He's been broadcasting live for more than 20 years already. And uh, currently during this COVID lockdown all around the world, Wild Earth has been live on many platforms and has created quite a global following. This morning I saw very early this morning, just after six o'clock, five and a half thousand people were live all at the one time watching the Kruger National Park and Swalu as well. So please join me for this conversation. It should be fascinating. It should be an interesting conversation about nature, about technology and about interacting with guests. So uh, please stay with me. My name is Alex MacPhail and this is High Performance Teams. Graham, good afternoon to you. Welcome. How are you today? Good afternoon. I'm good, thanks. Thank you very much for having me. It's an honor and a privilege to be here. Oh, the privilege is all mine. Thank you so much for your time today. I know you've run a very busy operation there and it's certainly been going a long, long time. Uh, but uh, we're going to get right into the weeds of lots of interesting things. But tell me, let's just go back if we can. Can we just backpedal a few years to kind of your formative time? I know you spent a lot of time in the, in the bush in the Kruger Park as a kid, but tell me about that sort of experience of your life and, and where it all started enjoying nature animals and diving etc yeah so um so i was i was uh, i was very privileged and uh, grew up in johannesburg south africa um and had the privilege of being able to make quite a number of trips when i was when i was a youngster with my grandparents and my parents every year a couple times a year to the kruger national park as well as also to the okavango delta and camping trips all over all over south africa in the various different beautiful reserves that we have and around. And, and and I think that from a very young age, the whole idea of going on a game drive has always been something that uh, that you know that that was that was very emotionally important to me and and my family. Um, in fact, I learned how to, to drive you know on a game drive in the Kruger Park, as did my brother. And I think that you know that had a big impact. But then what happened was that um, I. Um, I started getting very involved with scuba diving uh, while I was in high school, um, and uh, and then as I matriculated, I was able to get um, to become an instructor for uh, for Naui for one of the associations that uh, that you know run instructors, and um, and this 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 allowed me to avoid a tertiary education um, <laughs> and. Uh, and uh, disappear off into the world uh, while all my friends were studying, you know, useful tertiary degrees <laughs> and various things. And uh, and I, I was very lucky. I, I got to travel all over the world teaching people how to scuba dive. And and really for, for I don't know, for about four or five years in some of the most amazing places. Sure. But I really I really that, that that look in someone's eyes when they when they come out of the water for the first time on being on a dive. And that experience that they've had, where they've literally just been transformed by seeing a, a whole other world, and and actually seeing when human beings actually connect with nature, when they when they empathise with it, 
is uh, something that I just have not grown tired of. Um, and um, and really, this this was I don't think I even fully realized it in the beginning when we when we first in 1998 put the first webcam on a waterhole in Juma Game Reserve in the in the northern Sabi Sands. Um, and 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 yet that feeling of knowing that 24 hours a day that there are people all over the world that mm. are able to connect with nature through what what you're doing is very addictive, and I haven't been <laughs> able to uh, I haven't been able to shake it off. Uh, and, uh, and it's 22 years later, still doing the same thing, trying to do trying to get better and better at it, of course. Sure. Um, but, um, but it's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, yeah, I guess that's, that's, that's my passion. Okay. Well, you mentioned a lot of things that I'd like to discuss in a bit more detail and also just to slow it down a little bit too. I can see you're very passionate and excited about it. And let's, let's just talk about the scuba diving because it's something that fascinates me too. I enjoy scuba diving. I've qualified as an advanced diver, but when I was about 15, 14, somewhere there in high school, there was an exposure at my school. So there's two aspects that go with scuba diving for me. I mean, one is this sort of fully submersive experience of being amongst the animals, uh, you know, the fish and the, the marine life underwater, where you shouldn't typically be for more than 30 seconds. But the other is the sort of, uh, you know, the, the wonder of being able to be there for more than 30 seconds. So this exposure I had was to just have this equipment in the swimming pool at the high school and just go underwater for a minute and just try it out. And that really captivated me. And uh, years later, I managed to do my proper uh, underwater training. And that was wonderful. So it, it, it is a great experience. And then we, we, and, and I can, I can uh, associate with that feeling of coming out with your mind sort of opened. You've just seen a new part of life. So what was it uh, that, that took you then from diving to then going back into the bush because you, you took an extended tour in the diving phase of your life and then how did you get back into the bush side or why did you stop the diving um okay so the, 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 because you've got time i will t i'll tell you the story <laughs> <laughs> no, actually i can't tell the whole story might be a little bit uh, off, off, off but there were two gentlemen that were um tourist guests on a uh, a boat that i was managing a liverboard boat in the solomon islands um uh, the uh, the Billy Kiki um, and um, they were they were two stockbrokers from New York, uh, very successful at that stage. I would n I would now call them young. Uh, they were about <laughs> thirty. I was about oh, I was twenty one actually, um, and, um, and, uh, and 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 and. The end of it is, is that these guys, after two weeks, you know, we we got off to a bit of a rocky start, um, and uh, with them, with some some rather poor behaviour. But um, we then started to get to know each other and chat. And they said, you know, eighty percent of American millionaires made their money out of real estate, and you need to stop this messing around with, you know, this diving and uh, go and you know go and do something useful and get into real estate. And um, and I think I'd probably I don't know if I was bored. Uh, I, I I think I think what had happened was is that I'd had I'd had five years of traveling around or four years of traveling around the world. I think I was 22 at that time, and um, and uh, and I and I just sort of thought you know it, I it, it kind of I'd achieved what I needed what I could really achieve in diving, and I thought now it was time to do something else. And so I came back to South Africa and um, and I started in real estate um, and uh, began working as an estate agent and eventually had my own uh, real estate marketing business. Um, and 
uh, that was very successful until it wasn't. Um, and, uh, and, and, uh, and, I, and, and I had um, my, my, my first uh, business failure, uh, as this defined as being the business blew up, essentially. But it was the only time that I ever had what I now look back on and realize was a nervous breakdown, essentially just lying in bed in a fetal position, not knowing what to do and just really being panicked and scared because, you know, I couldn't pay the bills and, uh, and the business was, was collapsing and did collapse. Um, and, um, and so I, I did the only rational thing I knew how to do, uh, you know, any solution I could come up with, which was to take my gold credit card and run away to Grand Cayman in the Caribbean, uh, and spend three months diving. Uh, and, uh, and it worked like a charm, Alex, if you ever find yourself in the same position, strongly recommend it as a solution. In fact, three months lying on the beach in Grand Cayman is pretty much a solution to almost all problems. Uh, it turns out. Good tips. Thanks, Graham. Good tip. But uh, okay, so now I think we've skipped past another integral part before you get into your, how you started with that first webcam, etc. Because when we were speaking last week, you were telling me about programming your first flight simulator as an eight-year-old. I mean, before you were, before there was Microsoft Flight Simulator, you made your own game. Yeah, but, but I need to, first of all, put a big fat caveat in here. There was no graphic interface. So we, there was no horizon, you know, <laughs> there, was, uh, there, there, was, there was none of that. It was just numbers. Basically, if you pushed the power up uh, and, then, um, and then at a certain speed, which was just a number, okay, <laughs> you, could then, <laughs> you could then change your angle of attack, uh, you know, and, uh, and, and boom, you were flying. And then it was just numbers after that okay. <laughs> with a bearing. And uh, so, so it was very basic. Hey? It very sounds basic. quite advanced for an eight-year-old. So uh, we'll, we'll, give you, we'll give you that latitude that there was no graphics bit, but it was also in a time where graphics weren't very strong either. So, okay. So, but I just <laughs> want to highlight the point that you, you had a, a, an inquisitive childhood and uh, informative years. Okay, so now you've, you've been to the Grand Cayman and you've, you've maxed out your gold card and uh, you've had your so three months. So what happened was I came back to South Africa <laughs> and I wanted to do something else other than property. Um, and uh, I, I just hadn't, you know, I felt like property development and marketing, there just wasn't any heart to it. It, it was, it might be good for business and, you know, maybe you get rich doing it, but, um, but, but it, it's not what I wanted to spend the rest of my life doing. Um, and so I initially thought of, I wanted to get into media. Um, and my first thought, which was the worst thing I ever came up with, was I thought, well, I noticed how people were so fixated on kind of these horrible pictures and sort of really disturbing imagery that wasn't publishable in the mainstream media. So I thought, and, and such an interesting crime, so I thought, well, I'm going to make a, a magazine that kind of follows, well, not follows, but is all about serial killers and crime. <laughs> And uh, so I went to the Star, the Star newspaper archives, uh, and basically I did an agreement with them that I could use for very little money all of the images that they had accumulated over the years, but which they could not publish because they were just okay. terrible. <laughs> and after about half an hour of going through these pictures, I just stood up and just said, thank you, no thank you. Oh, and uh, walked out of there, and I just thought this was the worst idea I'd ever had. Honestly, <laughs> to this day, I'm still disturbed by some of the images that I saw sure. that morning. I mean, it was just horrible, horrible. And so, um, so I thought, but but I'm going to stick with media, and um, and obviously with my with with having spent a whole lifetime of having an interest in computers and programming, mm -hmm. 
I started a little business called the Internet Publishing Company with a friend, and we did websites for people. Okay. And I would um, I would sell in code, um, and uh, and it was a challenging time because you know people would say I, I don't even I don't even have an email address. I've got a fax machine. Why would I want a website? What what am I going to do with a website? You know what I mean? <laughs> and um, and it was hard. You know, it was hard to fight against the fax machine in those early days. Um, <laughs> you know, it was a, an incredible device capable of so much um, and uh and so um and so i started this little internet publishing company and then what happened was was that first the uh, mit had a had a webcam looking at their coffee machine so that all the people in the building didn't have to go all the way down to get a cup of coffee you only need to discover that there was no coffee in the coffee machine and, and uh, that was the first webcam ever and that was intriguing i mean it you is. know <laughs> Wow. Sounds, sounds ridiculous now, but that idea of being able to see what was going yes. on in the coffee over the internet, really? That's just like magic. <laughs> <laughs> and then a real piece of magic happened, and it was called the Amazing Fish Cam. And somebody had taken their um, a, a camera, a, a video camera, and, uh, and, and pointed it at their uh, fish bowl or fish tank uh, in their house. Um, and, and, and we're... <laughs> We're broadcasting this onto the internet. Now that that alone really blew me away, Alex. But the, but when it sold for five hundred thousand dollars to sure. to I thought, what? The world has gone crazy. I can <laughs> I can do better than that. And uh, so so myself and uh, and and Paul Clifford, uh, who later became my partner in Africa, hmm. um, we decided well. Tell it. Let's just go and put in a webcam on a waterhole. That's so much better than a fish cam. Sure. And um and and Reuters came and did a story, and this was in August of 1998, and within six days it was the busiest website on the African continent, um and yeah. it just kept growing from there. I, I think the following year in 1999 we did 45 million page views in one month, which yeah. today would that, be a big achievement. It is. But in 1999 it was like crazy. mind blowing. Mind blowing. Yeah. Okay. Graham, I'm going to pause you there for one second. I'm just going to put this little clip here of uh, a clip that's happened this week on your current situation. Here's the other one of your rangers giving a discussion. Yeah, this is uh, this is Tundi. Um, she's a, a leopard that is really, really um, close to our hearts. And as you can see, she's there with her young cub, which we she had two cubs. We hadn't seen them now for, I don't know, a little while, maybe a month. Um, and, and obviously, this this happened on the weekend and was a big, big deal for all of us. And there it is. There's the cub there. There's that little youngster um, who's looking super good. He's, or he or she is fat and healthy. Um, obviously, it's a shame we lost the other one. I've known her, Tandi. Now, Tandi's mother was Karula, who um, was um, was the queen of Juma. And uh, we followed her for 12 or 13 years until she sadly passed on. Um, and I knew her mother as well. So I knew Safari, uh, which was Karula's mother. So basically, I'm, I've known that we've been following these cats for four or five generations in that little in that little cub there. Oh, that's amazing. So, okay, so let's go back to the webcam. Obviously, your first webcam, 45 million hits in that month. You're not getting images like that. But, uh, you know, in the spirit of uh, high-performance teams using the concept of incremental gains to get there, you get the product out there and it's working. You get some early successes. 45 million views is amazing today. 
as you said, I mean, it, it would it would blow off anyone's web pages today too. But talk us through those first, uh, you know, those, those, those first days and, and first weeks and months getting this webcam up. What sort of images were you seeing? Did you have trouble with the system? Did it stay live all the time? <laughs> Tell us about yeah. those early days. Okay, so the early days, it, it, first of all, it's important to note that in those early days, it was not a business. We, we, we didn't think that it was a business. Um, uh, it, it, it really, it was a hobby. Um, and, and, and I say that because it's, it's important to note that when, you know, that through, through the years of doing this, oftentimes it wasn't a business. Um, and there were many days when you could not call, you know, where your costs exceed your revenue on a sustained basis. That is not good business. And, and, and it was important because it was always passion that kept it going. So the desire to share wildlife with people is what drives this and what has gotten us through these things. Not, not money. You know, this is not the best way to make a lot of money. I can assure you of that. Um, but, but in those early days, what, 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 what happened was, was that um, there, was, there was very little internet bandwidth available in remote locations. There still is very little, but then there was really very little. Um, and it was really very hard. Um, and and also people at home, if uh, you know, uh, were, were dialing up to the internet using like you know dial-up modems, you yeah. know, and uh, and so it was totally impossible to imagine that you could do something like watch Netflix, or mm. watch any kind of video. I mean, there sure. was no ways you could watch video on the internet at that stage. And so what we did was we served a thirty-second refreshing JPEG, basically okay. just a still JPEG image, no audio. Um, and and every thirty seconds it would um, it would serve another image, um, and and people would sit there and wait, and then <laughs> wait, and then thirty seconds. Oh, there's something there. Well, no, there isn't. And then they wait for the next one, and then boom, there's an elephant. <laughs> and, uh, and so it was um, it was a, it was a very different kind of time for us, um, and 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 also everything was analog. Now, obviously, but when I say everything. When the video, which is what we had, we'd have an analog video camera up in a tree, running over r running over coaxial cables, so sending a, a you know a, a video, an analog video, not stream, mm. but video feed, um, down the line, and then and then it would be eventually it would get to a computer, and there it would be digitized for the first time as a JPEG. But prior to that, everything was analog, and we couldn't always have a, um, a, a a wire running, obviously. So sometimes, for example, we wanted to have a trailer cam, which was our first mobile camera. Which, uh, in fact, no, the first was a wheelbarrow cam. <laughs> the cam was in a wheelbarrow, and uh, and and so it had to be wireless. And so we used analog microwave transmitters, which yeah. I, I I haven't woken up in the middle of the night sweating about them for some years. I'm so grateful for, but honestly. <laughs> These things were a nightmare because you, you never really, you, you never really had uh, a, a good connection. You, all you had was a less bad one, and, uh, and 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 there was no real, it was no real kind of logic often to to, to why it would be good or less bad, you know. Um, and uh, and so these things, it was just like black magic, really. It was just lots of trying and trying and trying different things to try to make it work. Um, but it was also a lot of fun, and uh, and it was and it was incredibly gratifying to to get such an instant response from an audience. You know, a lot of times with 
filmmakers. You work on something behind mm. the scenes for ages, and 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 you put it out there, and you don't really know how it landed. Uh, mm. You know, whereas live broadcasting, as you know, is is so immediate that um, yeah. you know, you can't hide your mistakes, <laughs> and, uh, and 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 your successes are instantly obvious. Yeah. Okay. I want to just uh, interrupt there, Graham. So, okay. So, you, the, in those early days, there, you talked about headaches and sleepless nights and things. But what was this, what was the sense of success? So what did you feel or notice or hear from your audience that that you realized that this was working and that you were improving it little bits? I mean, what was the feeling that you got as your team saying, "Yes, we're happy with that." I mean, I'm, I'm sure the picture of an image of an elephant rendering through uh, coming through on the webcam must have been one of those nice feelings. But what were the things that you noticed that said, "It's worth my while putting more energy into this. We're making progress." Yeah, it's a good, very good question, actually. Um, and, and, and really cuts to the absolute core of this thing. Um, I can tell you exactly what it is. It's mm. the fact that quite often, not every day, but quite often, I get a message uh, directly to me usually. Um, and, um, and, and, and all it is is somebody in the world saying thank you. And often they'll say to me something like, and it's always different, but they'll say, the only reason that I get out of bed is to watch this or I'm in a hospice and I'm terminally ill. And the only thing that keeps me alive are your broadcasts uh, or, 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 or several others, which I mean, if I start telling the stories, I, I will literally start crying, but it's knowing that all the time out there are a whole bunch of people that rely on what we do. Uh, mm-hmm. That it's it, it's 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 critically important. It's not just a TV show. It's not just about wow, you know. I wonder what the next animal is going to be. Mm-hmm. It's the fact that the opportunity to connect with nature reliably every single day in the same places to see the same animals, and oftentimes to have the same people telling you the stories, and the other people, the same people watching at the same time as you, yeah. helps people who are suffering, who are lonely, who are depressed, who are trapped at home for whatever reason or uh, are, are, in a, are in a place either physically or virtually or mentally mm. that, that is not great. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and I've learned how unbelievably powerful what we do is for those people. And that's what drives me. Okay. And so even in, the, yeah, even in the beginning of those early days, you, you, those messages got to you and you're able to just build on that energy. That's a great story, and then obviously it becomes relevant in today in this last uh, two, two, three sure. months. So, totally. So, so I'm trying to track a, a timeline of the story, but let's dive into today as well. Um, you know, COVID around the world, more people are locked down, and you guys have had a five-fold increase in your traffic. It's obviously been been good to get the message out there, but tell us about the, some of the experiences you've had being more and more and more on the global scene. I mean, you've been interviewed by CNN and all sorts. I mean, people all around the world are tuning in. Uh, thousands and thousands live every morning, every night. So tell us about this last sort of 10 weeks at Wild Earth. Yeah, so, well, I mean, I'm going to expand that a little bit, um, and, and particularly for your audience, because I think a lot of your audience are, you know, are, are, are interested in, in the sort of the human story and, and what it takes to do these kinds of things. And I'm going to start really with, with, um, with, with last year, what happened was um, in, in, in June of last year, we lost our anchor tenant, if you will, which is National Geographic. Actually, hold on. Let me just explain something. <laughs> okay. the, way, the way Wild Earth makes its money, the way, the way we pay the bills here, is that um, we, we license our, uh, a portion of our broadcasts 
to television broadcasters around the world as television shows, so as live television shows, just as what you see on, on, on YouTube or Twitch or Twitter or Facebook or wherever you watch Wild Earth, if you watch Wild Earth, we take, we take that exactly and we license these shows to television broadcasters and obviously they pay us. Um, and then what we use is that money then helps us to fund the broadcasts that we do every single day, which are for free on all these various different platforms. Now, sure. from 2014 to, to the middle of last year, National Geographic uh, has has been a long-term tenant, li- licensing lots of TV shows each year and all of our digital programming on a global, non-exclusive basis. And um, and and then in June of last year, we lost them as a oh. major tenant. And and the reason for that was because we can't deliver a live wild a live African safari in daylight into the east coast uh, of the United States or into the UK primetime television. Sure. What we can do is we can only get in at about 11 o'clock at night or even at midnight on the east coast um, and, and, uh, and, 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 and to get into primetime and, and, and we can't get into that all important between 8 and 10 p.m., mm. which means that the ROI for our customer just wasn't good enough mm. um, and, uh, and, and, and therefore we lost that income stream. And this put a huge amount of pressure on our business. I mean, suddenly... Sure. You know, we become so addicted to that, to that, to that annuity income stream that when it disappeared, it was 99% of our revenue. It was cataclysmic. Now we managed to secure a short-term arrangement with CGTN, CCTV, which is the China, one of the Chinese state broadcasters. And we delivered 14 live shows to them, uh, from Tanzania, South Africa and, and Kenya, uh, in October of last year. And that kept the wolf from the door. (laughs) And, uh, and, but 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 not not for very long. And so, unfortunately, in October of last year, we ha- had to retrench uh, about ninety percent of our workforce, our wow. staff, and move to a freelance basis, which is quite normal in both the um, safari and television industries mm-hmm. to be on a freelance basis. In in order to get our costs down as much as possible, we renegotiated um, our various different access agreements. In other words, the traversing rights, the rights to actually put vehicles and drive around. We renegotiated those. And really, we took a machete to everything, every cost we could. We had to. Sure. So essentially, Wild Earth was preparing for this pandemic already last year. Okay. Um, and, uh, and, and, and then what happened was we reached out in November to our audience and we, we asked them to help us to crowdfund so that we could keep running our daily safaris. Okay. And Alex, we had an overwhelming response. Honestly, it, it was, it was uh, an Indiegogo campaign okay. where, um, where, 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 we, we, where the generosity and support from our audience generated over 6 million rand in, in, in about a week. Wow, that's amazing. Um, it is amazing. And it, it's a, a real testament to, to the incredible effort that everyone in this company has put in over the years to build that level of trust sure. with our viewers that, you know, in our hour of need, they were there and they were there mm. big. Um, and then this got us, this, this got us through, till, um, through till sort of um, the, the, around February of this year, where once again, we began to ask for audience support, which was, again, uh, incredible, incredible support. Um, and, 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 and that meant we, we, entered, we entered into this, this global lockdown 
much leaner than we had ever been, um, uh, much more focused than we'd ever been, um, uh, with obviously many, many years of training and experience and equipment and relationships to back us up. Sure. Um, and, uh, and, and as this, as this happened, of course, all of the tourists staying in all of these places all disappeared, went home. Hmm. And so suddenly what that meant was that we were the only ones out there. There were, <laughs> there were no other tourists out there. Um, and, uh, and, and, and very quickly, um, uh, our audience just grew hugely, um, in, in, in many parts due to South Africa. So we saw, while wow, we saw a five-fold grow, growth in audience overall, we saw a 15-fold growth between March and April, um, uh, in just our South African audience. Yeah. Give you, yeah. Before the lockdown, 65% of our audience were coming from the United States and 5% from South Africa. Okay. By the end of April, a third of our audience were coming from the United States, which had doubled, and a third was now coming from yeah. South Africa. That's amazing. Um, uh, yeah. yeah, it was all because of a WhatsApp viral message, I think. <laughs> and uh, anyway, so and, and 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 with all the South Africans then watching, um, this this also a massive increase in our awareness and mm. and our utility, I suppose. Um, we then were approached by and beyond who basically said, look, we want to share our nature with, with your audience. Um, what can we do? And so we worked out an agreement with them. Uh, we've also added in Tswalu, where we, in the Kalahari, which is actually where we broadcast for two years in 2011 to 12. Um, uh, we were there for two years filming the Meerkats. Okay, um, well, and, uh, I, we wanted, had, I want to just interrupt you there for a second. Let's talk about uh, Tswalu and the Meerkats there. We, we are all over the place. So here's a nice clip from Tswalu. Okay. And uh, talking about the different locations, etc. So what, 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 what this little gang of, of meerkats are part of the Hossa gang, which uh, they've actually got a Facebook page. Uh, <laughs> look it up, Hossa, G-O-S-A gang. Um, and, um, and they are what is called a habituated um, group. That means that they are used to human beings. They are not tame. They, they, you, know, they, 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 you, know, you can't put them on a leash and take them for a walk. They're not pets, but they are used to human beings, which allows us to get very close to them. These little guys we filmed for two years um, uh, earlier, about a decade ago, um, and, uh, and, and, and now we can still carry on with them, which is so exciting. Um, and this is them early in the morning. They come out uh, and they spend about a half hour warming up before they head off for their day of foraging. Amazing little animals. Yeah, amazing. So the, really, what I'm trying to highlight here is that you've got these, you've got these two, three, four, five locations, and uh, and they're obviously quite diverse um, habitats as well. But but also, your we can talk a bit about your guides here. And uh, do you call them guides? What do you what what is their, their term in your team? <laughs> yeah, they're they're, they're 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 primarily called guides. Um, although we are, we did uh, sort of change to naturalist, um, naturalist okay. uh, for a while, um, but they are guides um, and they are naturalists, um, and it and it really, it, it's it's a it's a long story as to what they're talking about. <laughs> okay, but, yeah, but yeah, they, they they are obviously crucial because yeah. they are they are the people that actually take people on these experiences. Sure. Okay. So before we zoom in too much about that role. So, but but there's there's clearly an interest from your naturalist. You know, they they have their own favorites, obviously, but they also look at all sorts of things. So we've gone from a leopard and a leopard kill and cubs and 
small things. I'm going to show some more small things just now again, but, but you know, interested in the footprints and, and the leaves and, and the, the tiny things too. And that makes it quite a, a, a real experience. Like as I can recall going diving, you know, you, you, when you go diving the first time, you want to see the big things. And the next time you're looking at the colorful things. And the next time it's the big shoals. And then slowly you work your way down to you want to see what the nudibranchs look like and the little bits of coral. And, and I suppose it's a similar thing out there in the bush. You first want to see the big five and then you want to see the related and then you get smaller and smaller. And then you're looking at how does this tree grow and, and that kind of thing. And your guides really bring that message across nicely, the, the naturalist, to say, well, look at this. I find this interesting because of whatever reason. So, uh, so yeah, let's talk us, talk us through some of the, the, the interesting things. Here's another clip from that area. Same guide showing us a, yeah. a, a spider that is underground. Yeah, look at that. Eh? Yeah, that's, uh, that's a little spider trap. I don't know which spider it is, but you can see that it's, that's its trap. And that's Dylan. <clears throat> so Dylan is Dylan Smith. Um, is um, one of the one of the, the guides at Swalu. He's been there forever. I mean, he really has been. I've known Dylan for a long time. He's very passionate about the bush, as you can see. Mm. Uh, and although he's only been on this with us for whew, less than a month, um, yeah, he's already a firm favorite with a lot of our viewers. Um, I think that, um, <clears throat> I mean, to speak to the guides, there's so much to say. I mean, I think the first thing to say is that Wild Earth does not, uh, we, we look for people that are qualified and experienced guides, not television presenters. Mm -hmm. um, it's important to note that you were talking earlier about how we cover all the small stuff and how a tree grows all the way up to, you know, the leopards and cubs and so on. And, 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 and the reason is, is because we're not making a documentary. We're not making, uh, you know, a wildlife docky. We, we, we're, just trying to faithfully recreate that experience of being on safari. Mm -hmm. It is, in essence, a simulation, and maybe <laughs> I haven't grown up since I was eight years old. <laughs> and, that, and, that, and that what we're doing is we're not... So, so what we want people to feel, and I think they do, is that they're on the back of a safari vehicle. Nobody mm. knows what's coming. Sure. We've got an expert here that is going to be able to tell us about what we're seeing no matter what comes along, mm -hmm. from the very smallest to the very biggest, and, and to contextualize it all. And so we really look for those people that are obviously knowledgeable and obviously <clears throat> are uh, experienced, but above all are passionate about sharing nature. Mm -hmm. and, uh, <clears throat> and that's what seems to work best. And, and you're talking about not knowing what's coming. So here's a scene where they didn't know what was coming either. Let's listen to what he says here. These guys are little scaredy cats this morning. They don't want to be seen. Um, so while we watch these little bottoms, oh, there goes a leopard, a leopard. Do you see that? A leopard chased the ground hornbill. No ways. That's ridiculous. So again, uh, just uh, your, your thoughts on that. You know, they, they really, they're in the moment. They're passionate, even though they see, well, maybe not exactly this kind of thing every day. They see a leopard lots of days. They see all the animals. But now... I mean, he's clearly excited by what he's seeing too, and 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 it does feel really. You're right. You know, it feels like you're on the back of this game drive, and it and it's exactly. Yeah, it's and, a, and you know what? And you know, you know, you know what the thing of it is is that is that we 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 as viewers don't necessarily know what's rare or what's exciting or what's mm. out of the ordinary, and in and and a lot of our emotional reaction needs to be guided, or we need to be given cues, emotional cues. Um, uh, and and that's what the guide does. Mm. Um, and so obviously, you know, when 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 there's something that's exciting like that, um, then you know that's that enthusiastic response. But it's actually also very important in other situations. So, for example, 
our guides, the minute we come across uh, wild dogs that are on the move, our guides will immediately start saying, look, for, these animals are hunting and wild dogs can, you know, can, can be pretty vicious. Um, and so if you are a squeamish viewer or you're uncomfortable with that sort of a thing, then now's the time to maybe go and make a cup of tea. And, um, and, and, and if there is a kill, um, we have what, what we call the circle of life speech, which is super important because, you know, our viewers are, um, many of our viewers have not had the luxury of spending a lot of time in nature around predators and so on. And so for them, when they see uh, a lion or a leopard kill an animal, mm. it looks like murder um, and it looks cruel. And it and it's very hard for some viewers to contextualize what's going on here without anthropomorphizing it, i.e., without putting our own human values and emotions into the situation. Sure. Um, and and it's crucial that a guide can be sensitive to 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 those viewers. So, for example, you'll never see our guys fist pumping the air when there's a kill. Uh, you will see them, uh, and, and, and it's important because, you know, they, they are excited. They, they, they live there all the time, and the opportunity to, to see something like that is a big deal. But mm. our viewers wouldn't understand that. Yeah. So celebrating the death of another animal is not what we do, and rather what will happen is that guide will then calmly explain that in, in context. So the guide is not there to just give you facts. The guide mm. is also there to help you emotionally through the story. Mm, that's great. Another nice thing that they, they're good at is to just to say, let's just enjoy the, the scenery where you are. Another clip here which focuses a bit on the sunset and just how it all played together in this evening game drive. That sunset that is in the distance, it is seriously pretty. This open clearing and their sunsets are some of the best that you'll get in this northern Sabi Sand sector. It sets straight over the Drakensbergs there and especially with a bit of cloud like we've got tonight, the color is just out of yeah, I mean, I think I think being able to have silence and allowing the viewers to connect in that way is quite a difficult thing. Um, actually, uh, the, the the one reason is technical, uh, and that is is that for for a long for, it's a long story, but essentially there is a limit to how much atmospheric um, uh, sound we can bring in. Um, and the second thing is is that. You know, if it's your job to share and talk and explain, uh, it's quite difficult to not do so. Um, uh, and, uh, and, and so it's quite challenging. It's interesting, though, Alex, is that that, that idea of silence is something that, that we're actually working on. And mm -hmm. I don't know if you want to bring it up now, but we can I'll just yeah, allude yeah. to it. Carry on. Our, our vision is to create a 24-hour-a-day live television channel uh, where it's basically what you've been seeing there, but it's just live. You don't know where it's coming from. And there's no schedule, um, and uh, but at any time you could just you can you can click in and or watch it on your TV, and you'd be able to connect with nature from all around the world, uh, 24 hours a day. Mm. But right now we've only got two three-hour live blocks of programming every day. And in the next month or so, we're going to be launching a TV channel. And in between that is going to be um, a um, – just hold on a second. Josh, sorry, I'm just on an interview. Um, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Uh, so anyway, so, 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 so the, um, the, in between those live broadcasts, we've been making for the last few months a whole bunch of these blue chip clips, which are – you don't ever see people. You don't ever see anything man-made.
But each one is a story. It could be the crossing of, a, of, a, of, a, of the Mara River. It could just be a couple of elephants walking across the plains. Each one is a story, but there's no narration. There's only atmospheric sounds okay. and so little bits of music every now and again to just provide a bit of an emotional cue. And what's so interesting about this is that the minute you take away that narration, what happens is we, as the viewer, we start projecting into that what we see the story as being. Um, and, uh, and, 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 and it, I think it is a way to really get the viewer to engage more with the experience by not having someone talk. Now, now I'm not suggesting that, you know, that's the way we would make the whole safari. Of course not. But we, but we have toyed with it. And in the past, we've done something called, called a silent safari, which okay. is where we go for a drive for an hour or two, um, and you can hear what's going on, but no one talks. Okay. Um, is this and, on, the, on the same on the live feed? Yeah. We've also done one which is where we put the lens cap on the bushwalk. We, we don't have a bushwalk at the moment, but it'll be back shortly. But where we, we put the lens cap on the bushwalk, which meant that now you couldn't see anything. And now you were forced, the guide was forced to explain everything. Okay. And this was inspired by somebody who'd gone on a, on a, on a, on a game drive who was blind. Mm. And the guide had to describe what a lion looked like. And I just suddenly thought, now, wow, that's interesting. Yeah. So we really work hard to try and find ways for the viewer to be as particip participate as much as possible sure. and to, to find their story in everything. It sounds amazing. I mean, and, but also I just want to back up a little bit again and talk about some of the sort of technical challenges and really celebrate the, the sort of team dynamic and the incremental gains aspect to this uh, channel to where you are today. You know, first thing is to recognize this isn't something that started during lockdown, 22 no. years in the making. But let me just play this little clip and you, and you can just uh, you know, give people a sense of the, some of the challenges you've come up against before. And I mean, people don't know that you ran an underwater live show too. Yes, so um, this is, a, well, you, my, my passion is diving. So I've been trying to get live live diving going for a very long time. Um, and we've had a variety of different issues. One of the big challenges with diving is that, um, I don't know if it will be visible on this clip. You don't have to have a clip where you've got somebody who's actually underwater, that's talking from underwater, do you? No, I just have this turtle and then the squid just now. I don't have the, the people in the shot. Okay. So anyway, the, one of the big challenges here was that we wanted, we, we needed to have somebody that could talk. But the problem is, is that if you talk underwater, you've got to do so obviously in a full face mask. And, and, and very quickly, your CO2 levels build up. This creates cognitive problems, um, i.e. you don't think as well as the CO2 level goes up. But also, um, you get properly out of breath. Um, and, uh, and, and so what was happening was it was not possible for us to run a dive with a diver underwater talking all the time. So we added another marine biologist um, on the surface that could then have a conversation. I love these squids. This is in, in Grand Cayman as well. Um, and we had a conversation so that now it was a two-handed affair and that worked a lot better. This was a crowdfunded project. We did it in Grand Cayman for four months in 2018, Dive Live. Um, and, uh, and, it, uh, and it's going to come back, uh, not oh. as Dive Live, but it's going to come back as part of our channel that we're that Wonderful. We're yeah, so if you'd listened into one of those the conversations you can hear when the diver's speaking, obviously, because there's that the regulator that's going on and off the whole time and you can hear the other person sounds a bit more studio-like. So obviously, there were some technical challenges to get that right. But when we were talking before the show, you said uh, you, were, you, you were not actually the first, but the first live diving experience was in the 70s. That sounds unbelievable. 
Yeah, well, actually, not just not only just the first di- di- underwater diving experience. The the first live wildlife was um in uh was a was a a badger set done by the BBC, which they broadcast live on television in 1976. Then I do think it was two years later, in 1978, that they did something called Reef Watch, um, which is um where a couple of presenters with these big bubble kind of big okay. bubble on their heads would go down underwater and they could then talk. Uh, and this was in a lot in the Red Sea. And uh, they broadcast from there a few times. So that was the first time it was ever broadcast from underwater. Oh, that's wonderful. Okay, so Graham, now we look at this big, long, expensive career of 20 odd years. Uh, you mentioned at the end of last year, you know, losing a big key tenant, especially with sort of 90% of your revenue, that's a big slump. But uh, talk us through any of the other sort of pitfalls along the way. You've mentioned before you had a team that was 120 strong and vaporized to nothing. I mean, tell us through the sort of learnings of those big failures and how you, how you bounce back up, how you wake up the next day fighting fit. How, how, do you, how do you shake that off and get ready for the next thing? Yeah, so, um, yes. So, f- first of all, th- th- this whole concept is, um, has been very challenging because it has been very difficult to to to, to match revenue with costs, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 that's been because the 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 the, the evolution of streaming, uh, both technically and commercially, over the past you know twenty years has been um, dramatic. For example, it wasn't even possible to insert an ad into a, a, a video stream until late two thousand and eight, um, and 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 if you can imagine that. That if you if you if you're sending a stream if you're broadcasting a stream to someone mm. not on YouTube eh? I'm talking about now this is before YouTube yeah. if you if you're doing that then that stream is coming off of your servers and so you're paying for that bandwidth to go to the customer yes to the viewer and if you've got a banner ad that gets served up at the top of the page when they start that stream that means you're getting probably three or four dollars per every thousand people that open that page. And then you're only getting it at the beginning. So then if they didn't start the stream up and they start watching, the longer they watch for, in other words, the better quality your content is, and ours has always been pretty good, um, means that people have long viewing sessions, which means that the longer they, the longer they watch for, i.e. the better your content is, the more money you lose. <laughs> um, and uh, and that was the problem until late 2008. Okay, and and don't 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 think that just because suddenly the the pre-roll ad was invented, the in-stream ad was invented in 2008, and that magically solved the problem. It didn't. It just meant that it was technically impossible to have a successful streaming company prior to 2008 uh, that was advertising funded. Um, and uh, and and and. And, and so, and so, what we've dealt with here is a business which, 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 on the one hand, couldn't work, and on the other hand, <laughs> didn't want to die. Okay, and uh, and it didn't want to die because of a combination of the value it had in 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 the lives of of, of a lot of people around the world, mm-hmm. and and at the other hand, the team, myself, Emily, Peter, and others. I'll tell you about our team in a moment. Um, that, that 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 wouldn't let it go, even when wiser people, um, you know, said that this is not a business. Mm. And I think that's the key to our success. The key to our success is, is that we didn't do this to make money. We make money to be able to do this. 
Mm. And the difference between those two is utterly crucial in this modern world. Mm. If your objective is money, then don't do something like this. Yeah. You know, uh, and and I, I mean, <laughs> it, it doesn't make any sense. You can't make money your objective. Money is just fuel that you use to achieve a goal. Sure. So especially if you're trying to create the new thing, you know, if the technology isn't, it's almost like the technology is not even there to support you yet, and you're starting. You know, then you really you know, how, uh, to create the whole sponsorship model, advertising, etc. That wasn't there when you started it, so you can't start with the money in the front. But let's no. talk about that team now, um, Graham. You've yeah, brought sure. up the team, so so you are a high performance team. You've got uh, offices in Johannesburg. You've got game drives in Kruger, in Sabi, in in Tualu. It's broadcast via London. I mean, this is a complex uh, integration. And bearing in mind, it's all live twice a day, every day, for year in, year out. So tell me about the team and the roles. Okay, so first of all, the, the roles. Um, so the, 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 there, there, are, there, are, there are four key roles that are involved in each uh, broadcast. Um, and, and then there's a whole bunch of roles that support those roles. <laughs> uh, so, so, so those four key roles are obviously the guide. So that, that, that you can see, and that's obvious. Um, and we discussed them briefly previously. The second role is obviously the camera person. And, and it's important to note there's only one camera per, per unit or vehicle. Could be a boat, could be a, could be a bushwalk, could be a vehicle as you currently see. Um, and those units only ever have one camera on them. And that's really important because part of our, part of our, um, our format, I guess, is to, to create that feeling that you're on the back of the vehicle, which means that we must not cut between mm. cameras in a sighting because that's what happens on television. Okay. Psychologically, the viewer, when they come to that sighting, must stay in one camera mm. in order for them to feel like they're there. Mm. The minute you start cutting them, they start thinking they're watching television, which puts them back in their lounge. Um, and, uh, and so one camera person, that camera person is a is, is a very important role because because that person is um, got to trust that guide one hundred percent. You are uh, on an open vehicle, and in in the low felt we use uh, short wheelbase nineties where there are no sides on them. Uh, there's no roof, and you are sitting right out there in the open, uh, you know, with the animals, and so you've got to have a lot of trust with the guide. So, um, but you've also got to be you've got to be listening, and you've got to be focusing on what's going all the time because there are all sorts of little rules that we have. Uh, you know, as for example, if we're broadcasting a television show and a question is asked, then you've got to reposition so that there's space for the question box, for example. Mm -hmm. um, it is, uh, it is a, it is a three hour in the morning and three hour in the afternoon, 100% focus time. Um, and so it is, it is a challenging role that being a camera operator. And one of the biggest challenges are that after your first tour and most people work in six weeks on two weeks off cycles. Um, but, but after your first tour, the, the first time you're amped because it's so glamorous. <laughs> I'm a wildlife cameraman. I'm live. It's just amazing, and I'm out in the bush. But as the, as the months roll by, that 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 glamour, I mean, you know, wears off a little. Um, mm. And uh, and and then what counts is your ability to go out and do the same thing every day, twice a day, mm. and not let that routine kill you. Um, and uh, and and that's not for everyone. 
Then the third role is um, is really is, is two people um, in in the, the director one and director two, or as we call them, D one and D two. Okay. Um, these these are <laughs> I don't actually know why, but in our business they are always women, always. Okay. Literally, I mean, I think that I can count on one hand, you know, the the, the number of exceptions to that rule over the last decade and a bit oh. so they're always women and they um and 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 so the d1's role is to stay in contact constantly with um with the guides and camera operators so you'll have seen that all the guides have got a little earpiece in their yeah. ear that's the director and also all the camera operators do and um and she can communicate with individuals individual units or groups uh she's got a very complex radio management system which allows her to communicate with all of these and this is a normal vhf radio system it's our comm system but it it, it links all of our repeaters so we've got one in we've got two in in the Masai Mara we've got one in Swalu um we've got one in Juma um and that and one in Johannesburg control room which means that you can pick up a radio and communicate with any of our teams anywhere in that system um, as if you were just talking on the radio because they're linked by the internet. Wow. And, um, and then, and her role is to, is to really cut the show. So she's deciding where we are and where we're going to next. She is um, making the decisions about, um, about when certain things that need to be played out in the show are played out. Um, and, 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 and she's directing the show. She's also cutting between the feeds. She's running a, a TriCaster. It's called a TriCaster that she can manage all the feeds and, and all and everything in there. Then sitting right next to her is, um, is also a, a lady uh, in the role of D2. This is Director 2. And her role is to manage all of the interactivity. Uh-huh. And so she is monitoring all the various different endpoints. Um, so Twitch, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, etc., um, and also emails coming in from kids, questions, and then she's got to manage those in in, in terms of deciding what are the uh, what are the most relevant questions, and she provides up to ten of those at a time to D1, who has that on a separate screen where she can okay. see all the questions. And then she is able to decide, okay, I'm going to send this question here. And so D1 and D2 work very closely. And those questions are crucial because obviously they're crucial to the viewers because they want to hear the questions answered. But they're actually also very crucial because they allow the directors to direct the show. They control the narrative through the questions. Um, And so what questions are sent through to which guides is how they are effectively helping the guide to guide the conversation. Um, and, uh, and, and so it's a, well, they're all important roles, but obviously that, those two are really important roles. Then also sitting next to them in the final control is the fourth role, and that is the support engineer. Um, and the support engineer's job is to be responsible for all contribution feeds. So those are all the feeds coming in from the various different units, um, and they all come in different ways. Eh? Some of them are coming via mobile networks. Some of them are coming in via di- over DVBT networks. I mean, there's a variety of different ways that those can land. Um, and also, there's a whole bunch of out- outgoing distribution streams as well, which are going to various places uh, and, in, and in various ways. Um, and that whole network is managed by the support engineer. Um, and, uh, and, 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 and he, 
And no, it's not always a he. There are some she's, <laughs> but um, but but it's usually a he there. Um, his his or her role is to is to just really be out there on the edge of the network, making sure that the whole thing holds together uh, throughout the whole process. Yes. <laughs> that is it. So w- what's very important to note is that myself and Emily, who runs the content team, the, the, the production team, um, and, and, and Peter Bratt, who is our chairman and CTO as well, and mm-hmm. is integrally involved with Alex, who runs the tech team, um, and, uh, and, and all of that management, and Steph, who's our operations manager, are not involved, uh-huh. are not involved. Um, because when, when that broadcast begins, everybody, because we do it every single day, 365 days a year, twice a day, uh, and, and the, the machine never stops. Because it never stops, it means that there are no indispensable people. There, um, there are, because we, we can't have indispensable people in a system that has to run every single day. Um, and that we do not micromanage. If we want to make a change to the format or respond to something, that is done between shows, not in shows. Um, and, uh, and, and everybody knows their place. Everybody trusts what everybody else is going to be doing and that they're going to be doing it. Um, and that we, 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 we go through like a ritual half hour beforehand, which is where we do pre-flight checks. And yes, we do call them pre-flight checks, even though usually nothing gets available. <laughs> Usually, (laughs) (laughs) so the whole team goes through a whole pre-flight check on every single piece of equipment on themselves, their Mm. temperature, how they're feeling, are they ready? Do you have all their pieces together? And this process bonds the whole team. It's a bit like the way lions groom before going on the hunt, and that bonds the whole team. And after that, there, everyone, everyone knows their place, and off they go. Um, and, uh, and, and we, yeah, that, that's how we do it. It sounds fascinating, Graham. It sounds really, um, like well thought out and, and, you know, you obviously given enough trust, you have enough trust in the team to give them that sort of, uh, complete autonomous responsibility to go out and produce the show, uh, with the significant players, chief executive and, you know, content producer and ops officer standing back and, and allowing the frontline people to get on with it at any one time on these live game drive broadcasts. How many vehicles are out there? What what is it? Does it up and down, or is it is it always yeah, five, or what is the number? It's always varying. At the moment, it's constantly going up. Um, I think that um, this afternoon there will be one, two, uh, three, four, five, six. Okay. Six vehicles out this okay. afternoon. Okay, so all right. So I mean, that's a it's a nice option as well to jump between shots, and you know, while one person is getting across to another area, that's a nice opportunity to have that many to to call upon. And uh, is it focused on Kruger and Swallow, or is the Maasai still part of this feed currently? Currently, the Maasai is not there, but okay. what we have added from yesterday is Pinda, which is um, which is uh, obviously in KwaZulu Natal. Mm. Uh, then we've got, as you said, one feed coming out of Tswalu. We don't have any feeds coming out of the Kruger National Park. Um, we're not in the Kruger National Park. We're in the Greater Kruger Park, Great, which greater, yeah. is an important distinction because we're we have one we have two feeds coming out of the Sabi Sands. That's mm. Juma Game Reserve, and they tra- they traverse Juma, Chitwa Chitwa, and Simbambili. Um, and then um, we've got another team at and beyond Zingala Private Game Reserve, which is part of the Greater Kruger as well. It's only 30 kilometers north of Juma, um, but is not in the Kruger Park. Okay, um, sure. And then um, 
It's next door. Then, <laughs> okay. um, then we have another one which is in Pride Lands, which is almost, which is right at Hoodsprate, which is also part of the Greater Kruger, but it's an awfully long way to the Kruger Park from there. <laughs> um, and uh, and then there is um, um, one feed coming out of Tswalu at the moment. All right. Now, Graham, it's been, been fascinating. I've got so many more questions, but I want to, I think, just leave you with two more questions and then uh, we will have to make it to episode two. Just to understand, in, in, <laughs> yes, uh, that's a thumbs up for episode two. Thanks. Yeah. Just to understand the, the, um, the sort of roles and responsibility of these rangers, naturalists in the park. Yeah. Are they obviously trained in the, the ability to be their ranger before you employ them? Is your cameraman also trained in the sort of ranger principles? Are, are they... Are they educated enough, or are they relying on the, the the naturalist in front to to look after them should any situation develop? Yeah, I mean they are they are they, we we do not employ uh, camera operators on the basis that they are also guides. Um, okay. uh, 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 but what happens is that after after years and years of doing this, there's no question that camera operators become very very. Uh, they may not have as much knowledge as the guides, but their ability to read, say, elephant or mm -hmm. to, to, to read a situation is as good. Um, no question about it. Um, I, 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 but, but at the end of the day, those guides are the ones making the decisions about how you're going to position that vehicle. And therefore, there must be trust because, sure. you know, and, and it's very, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think if I can think of a situation where, where there was a breakdown in that trust and I can't. But it, it would be difficult, you can imagine, if you're mm. sitting on the back of that vehicle and you do not trust the person who's driving you around, that they're going to make the right decisions and read things correctly, that could cause a problem. Mm. And, it, and, and, and not because of a lack of trust, but we have had a situation years ago where uh, uh, an elephant, you know, popped its, its tusks into one of our vehicles and just oh. missed the guide, Oof. went behind the guide and just missed the, 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 the leg of um, the camera operator. So that was scary. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, yeah, so that trust is a big thing. As we just discussed, I'm going to ask you the last question. I'll put this night shot coming through just to show that you have a whole variety of different cameras and scenes. This is mm. about another 90 seconds of clip. We can just talk over the, the lines there. Um, so you've obviously created this team and it's been a, a long journey with lots of ups and downs. And, 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 you know, in some respects, October, November, December last year gave you a chance to be lean and mean, fighting fit to face COVID. Uh, you know, a lot of industries all around the world, particularly yeah. tourism, are taking a massive hammering and will take a long time to recover. Yeah. What are your top tips in creating the high-performance teams? My top tips are in creating high-performance teams are uh, to employ people that you can trust and who know what they're doing and then trust them to do it. Um, I think that uh, an important an important tip for a high performance team also is that you 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 need to you need to get people to do something every single day and make it part of routine, make it normal. If you want to make it great, if you take the approach that we're all going to plan and talk and meet and discuss, and then we're going to do something you've got a high chance of that thing not being what you want it to be. But if it's done every single day and it becomes normal, then you can, you can really push a team higher and higher and higher. If I can paraphrase you there, would you accept my, uh, my paraphrasing of what you've said there is incremental gains. You just every day do it again and just improve yeah. that little bit. Absolutely. Incremental gains. But it's not just incremental gains. You've first got to be doing it every day. So it's 
it's it's important that you know, like you, you fly, right? I mean, if sitting around and 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 talking about it isn't going to make you a better pilot, um, mm. and uh, and and you know, and it's it's that continuous doing that I think is such an important part of of building a great high performance team. Oh, great trust and continuous activity, Graham. It's been wonderful chatting to you. I think we should leave it there and uh, and schedule episode two. Uh, when maybe when you're the next thing, the live dive, or you get that next venue, but certainly there's lots more to talk about. I thank you so much for your time today, and I appreciate it. And uh, good luck for what's going forward too. Thank you very much, Alex. It's been great chatting with you. It's been great watching your your burgeoning your your burgeoning show. And I know that we, I don't know if you. I'm I'm convinced you're going to be doing some super exciting stuff uh, as well. So good luck, mate, and really appreciate it. Keep on going. Eh? Thanks, Graham. All the best. Thank you for listening. I'm excited to have you on this journey with us. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and remember to subscribe to the show to catch weekly episodes so that you can build your high-performance team.